Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Using the Moses technology sometimes is beneficial because you can, it's basically like a defocused laser beam. Um, so it actually coagulates really well for these bleeders. All right, um, medical management of stone disease. So this is the crux of a lot of like what you will see in the office. And this is really critical on how to prevent stones from coming back. So I think we're gonna go through some of the main aspects of calcium stone disease, and then also some other pointers and some newer information that's come out recently. All right, these are my disclosures. I do work on the side for uh, some new technologies like Applied Medical, uh, Boston Scientific Coloplast, and I am on the exam committee for the American Board of Urology. Um, as we know, the prevalence of stone disease has been increasing um, rapidly over the course of, over the, course of the years. Um, this is data from 2012, and it's uh, some of the most updated data. There's some newer data that shows that the prevalence is about the same, somewhere between 8 and 10% uh, in the United States. Um, but obviously something that we need to slow down, and kidney stone disease uh, and stone disease in general is one of the most expensive, thing, expensive things that urologists treat now. Um, probably about 10 years ago, it was equal to the cost of prostate cancer, kidney cancer, and bladder cancer combined. However, with the newer drugs that are out there now for those malignancies, kidney stones are probably right in the mix of those things. Um, but it is expensive overall, not only from surgery, but from prevention, office visits, radiology, and, and time left off work and ER visits. The recurrence rates, again, are somewhere in this range. Uh, I think the most recent data, again, someplace around 8 to 10% within five years, five to 10 years. Now, to do a good metabolic evaluation for a patient, you obviously need data. And there are, th there are theories that empiric therapy works as well. And we'll, we won't discuss that in detail, but there are studies that show just using potassium citrate and thiazide diuretics are beneficial. But this is the problem. Most people believe that, a, that a, some sort of metabolic evaluation is important to determine why you're making the stones in order to target your therapy. A paper that came out of University of Washington several years ago showed that only 7.4% of patients that are high risk for developing recurrent kidney stones underwent a 24-hour urine collection in the United States at that point in time. Um, that hopefully has improved now that the medical management of kidney stone guidelines has come out by the AUA, and there's been other hype about doing metabolic evaluations. But metabolic evaluations are not the only thing. They are just one of the only things that are available right now. Um, provider variation also varied in quality of metabolic stone management. 16% of, uh, 16, only, there was only a 16% rate of repeat 24-hour urine collections within six months of the initial abnormal collection in patients that had metabolic stone workups. And we, as a field, urologists, were one of the worst. We actually had a 24% lower odd of repeating a test versus primary care, and nephrologists and endocrinologists both did better than urologists in, in performing metabolic evaluations. This is one of the old Borgi randomized control trial that shows water intake is extremely important. So just comparing water, increased water intake versus randomized, just drinking water as you, as you normally would, patients that drank more water in the treatment arm developed less kidney stones. And a very large uh, cohort series that, are that was performed by Gary Curhan showed that the relative risk of stone formation decreased uh, with stone uh, with fluid intake. And this is three large trial, international cohort trials that were done to, to, um, 
in, on multivariate analysis that showed that water intake is extremely important. So how do you get your patients that drink a little bit of water to drink more water or patients that drink a fair amount of water to increase their fluid intake? So one of my nephrologists that I worked with when I was at NYU, David Goldfarb, who is on the medical management of stone guidelines for the urology world, um, actually gives a prescription out. And I started giving a prescription out to many patients when we still had prescription pads that actually said one of the most important things that they could do is just increase their fluid intake. And they would I tell them to pin it up on their refrigerator or somewhere on, a on, a, on some sort of board that they could actually remind themselves every day to drink a lot of water or a lot of fluid. It doesn't have to be water alone, fluid in general will be beneficial. If they can tolerate the fluid, that's great. Some people have other uh, comorbidities that prevent them from drinking a lot of fluids. But if fluid, is, fluid intake is their important thing, that, that would be the crux of uh, preventing stones. The other thing is that there are alternative methods to increase fluid intake that have been hyped. Alex, when he, Alex, when he was a resident here um, with one of our other faculty members, Kelly Healy, we wrote an article about um, increasing fluid intake and what you could do. There's a push study going on right now by the NIDDK uh, to evaluate fluid intake. And they use a specialized water bottle that gives you reminders to drink more fluid. Um, and they're actually motivating patients with even income, cash to try and get them to increase fluid intake because that could decrease the overall cost of kidney stone disease. There are apps that are available on your, on your, uh, on your smartphones that allow you to increase your fluid intake as well and monitor your fluid intake. And simple things that cost five cents or less, a rubber band that someone puts along their wrist, uh, along their wrist in order to remind themselves to drink more fluid every day. Every time they see the rubber band, go drink more fluid. All right, here's the main portions of my talk are really about the role of calcium in kidney stones because it goes along medical management of kidney stones. About 80% of all stones contain calcium. About 65% are calcium oxalate, 15% are calcium phosphate, which are broken down into also hydroxyapatite and brushite type stones. And if you know brushite stones, they're very resistant, hard stones, don't work, don't fracture well with shockwave lithotripsy, and they recur quite rapidly and are hard to manage and prevent. Hypercalciuria can be defined in multiple different ways, and you can look at your lab as the reference point when you're doing a 24-hour urine collection. But in general, it's greater than 200 on a 400 milligram calcium, 100 milliequivalent sodium diet, which is a very difficult diet. Uh, in general, it's gonna be greater than 225 to 250 milligrams per day on a random diet. There are multiple causes of calcium stones, uh, and we're gonna look into each one of these separately, hypercalciuria, hyperoxaluria, and hypocitraturia. All right, so we'll start with hypercalciuria, and there are three different basic types of hypercalciuria, absorptive, renal leak, and resorptive. And differentiating them makes some difference, but not a lot of difference. So let's start with absorptive hypercalciuria. That's where there's an increased intestinal absorption of calcium. The most common, most severe form is type one, when urinary calcium remains high despite taking in a low calcium diet. And what you see on your metabolic parameters when you're looking at serum bl bl blood tests, you'll see serum calcium is normal in the setting. Urine calcium is typically gonna be elevated when fed and normal when fasting. And your parathyroid hormone will be normal to low. Second category, renal leak hypercalciuria. So this is a primary renal leak it's a defect in renal reabsorption of calcium. The kidney has to typically reabsorb 98% of calcium to maintain homeostasis. And this is primarily done in the proximal collecting tubule. And if you have an impaired reabsorption, it leads to a secondary hyperparathyroidism. So laboratory tests that will be relevant when you're looking at this is serum calcium will be normal, your urine calcium will be elevated, and your parathyroid hormone will be slightly elevated as well. 
And this, is, this slight elevation in parathyroid level happens because of the leak of calcium in your urine, which is gonna keep your serum calcium at its normal level because you're now gonna be able to absorb more uh, from your intestinal tract and potentially even break down bone disease, cause bone disease. And then resorptive hypercalcuria. This is typically pi primary hyperparathyroidism. This is an increase in bone demineralization. You can get an increase in bone demineralization. There's an increase in bone resorption and absorption from intestines. And the typical stone is calcium phosphate, and you can quite often see nephrocalcinosis on imaging. These patients will almost always have serum calciums that are elevated, urine calciums that are elevated, and parathyroid hormones that are elevated. So look for these types of laboratory studies in these patients to differentiate them because the treatment of resorptive hypercalcemia is very different. A point to be considered, when you have a calcium phosphate stone on a stone analysis, and obviously stone analysis have some degree of error within them, but if you have a predominantly calcium phosphate stone, the first two things that should pop into your head are, does this patient have some, some sort of form of renal tubular acidosis? And does this are they on a medication that causes a renal tubular acidosis? Or do they have hyperparathyroidism? And you must rule those out every time that you see calcium phosphate in your, in your stone analysis, basically. This is again a summary slide that differentiates the causes of hypercalcemia that we just went over. But again, look at this. The high serum parathyroid hormone levels happen in renal leak and in resorptive hypercalcemia. And the renal leak hypercalcemia will usually be like a mild elevation in parathyroid hormone. All right, so what are the treatments? For absorptive and renal, they're actually the same. So the treatments that we know, you limit sodium intake, because sodium has some role in calcium uh, excretion, which I'll show you, thiazide diuretics, and potassium supplements. And this could either be potassium chloride or potassium citrate, depending on what you're trying to treat. If you have primary hyperparathyroidism, it's referral to endocrine surgery or an endocrinologist for further evaluation, and then move on to parathyroidectomy if it's appropriate. So calcium stones, if they're idiopathic, now considering both either the, the absorptive or renal leak, it's the same therapies that we just discussed. So what does sodium restriction matter? So sodium prevents the renal calcium reabsorption. So the first thing you should look at your 24-hour urine collection, when you see a high calcium level, look at your sodium level. The sodium level should be normal. If it's high, one of the first treatments to lower your calcium level in your urine is reduce their sodium intake, if at all possible. And the other thing that makes sodium very important is that if you put someone on a thiazide diuretic and their salt intake stay high, their thiazide diuretic will not work well. So every 100 milliequivalents that are higher or that are above normal in a urine sodium leads to an increase in 50 milligrams in urine calcium. So this is the way that you can lower your urine calcium just by monitoring your sodium level. Quite often, this salt intake is gonna require a nutritionist to work with your patient to try and get their salt intake to decrease or think of other substitutes or get them out of the food habits that they already have. A randomized controlled trial showed that a low salt diet reduced calcium excretion in hypercalcemic stone formers. And historically, uh, so that's the point with salt. Restricting dietary calcium is a whole other point which is extremely important because this is something that's changed over the course of the last probably 10 to 15 years. Historically, calcium restriction was largely advocated. The problem is that hypercalcemia often is often a regulatory pro problem with calcium absorption, not due to an excess in intake. Hypercalcemic patients have higher than expected uh, calcium excretion at any level of dietary intake. And what we found in old studies even is that if you're on a low calcium diet, you mobilize calcium from your bone to avoid a negative calcium balance, which upregulates calcitriol. So you're actually doing a harmful event. 
The effects of dietary calcium have been seen in multiple large cohort studies, typically by Gary Curhan and Eric Taylor. These have all shown in multivariable analysis that kid symptomatic kidney stones are decreased with increasing quintiles of dietary calcium intake. So the more normal calcium levels that you have in your diet, not supplemental calcium, but dietary calcium, reduce your stone formation rate. So large cohort studies. Then the best study came out in 2002 by Borgi out of Italy, that, where they studied 120 men with recurrent calcium oxalate stones and hypercalciuria. And anyone that's read about metabolic stone disease will see this article pop up over and over. They randomized patients to normal calcium, low protein and low sodium diets versus low calcium diets. And what they showed in five years is if you're on the normal calcium diet, you have a 20% stone recurrence, but if you're on the low calcium diet, you actually have a 38% stone recurrence. This is the graph that was in their, in their picture, I mean, in their paper, that showed that the low calcium diet was actually worse. And the, recurrent, the relative risk of recurrence was higher on the low calcium diet. So we typically will tell people to take a normal RDA recommended calcium intake. So calcium stones and relatively high calcium urine, you still should consume the normal recommended daily amounts of calcium. In postmenopausal post women, this is typically 1,200 milligrams a day, or men over the age of 70, and everyone else approximately 1,000 milligrams per day. Every serving of dairy has about 300 milligram, milligrams of elemental calcium. So you ideally want patients to have three servings of something per day with dietary calcium, which is hard for a lot of people to do. There are a lot of people in the, in the world nowadays that don't drink a lot of, don't eat a lot of dairy products either because they have lactose intolerance or they have on specialized diets such as vegan diets um, that don't allow them to eat lactose. The problem is how do you get calcium into those people's diets? And there's very limited ways. Some ways are calcium fortified orange juice. However, calcium fortified orange juice quite often has a lot of calories within it. So your patients will often be diabetic. So that's not a way for them to go. You can do low calorie cal orange juice. And that's been shown by Amy Crambeck uh, that low calorie fluids, juices like low calorie orange juice, low calorie lemonade actually have a lot of citrate in them as well. The orange juice has extra calcium. So it makes it almost like a glass of milk, but they have an artificial sweetener, which is another problem. So, and the last ways to get calcium are in, in, other, in other fruits and vegetables, potentially. Things that are high in calcium in your diet that you can do are things like broccoli, kale, chickpeas, figs, but how much can they actually take in per the, of those per day without requiring extra calcium some other way? Uh, lacto, lactates and things like that can also help people increase their dietary calcium intake. And quite often, again, getting a nutritionist involved if they don't know how to increase their calcium intake. Because hyperoxaluria will happen both because of high oxalate intake, but also will happen because of low calcium intake. Here's the evidence supporting medical therapy. It's really limited. They're good randomized control trials with small numbers of patients. And this is where our thiazides have come into play. So the first trial to support thiazides use in, um, in the use of uh, prevention of kidney stones was a prospective double-blind study in 50 patients, history of calcium stone disease. This is back in 1984. Uh, they were given generic treatment recommendations, and then they were medically treated with either hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams twice a day versus placebo. And this study is this simple. It was followed prospectively and they watched new stone measurements, new stone events measured over the course of three years. And if you were on placebo versus hydrochlorothiazide, you had almost a 50% greater risk of developing relapse of stones. Here's the second thiazide trial, fairly basic again, 
prospective randomized double-blind studies. These were not necessarily powered to the level that you would necessarily need and hard to reproduce nowadays. But this again was done in calcium stone formers in 1988. And these were patients that were randomized to chlorothaladone, magnesium hydroxide, and placebo. And this study also simply looked at how the stone recurrence rates were in three years, and they measured new stone events. And this again showed that placebo had a doubling rate, a, high, a double amount of uh, stone formation or stone events compared to chlorothaladone at a 40% versus 20% rate. There was a third trial that used indapamide. So remember, there are three drugs out there, chlorothaladone, indapamide, and hydrochlorothiazide that can be used to prevent stones when a thiazide diuretic was appropriate. And by three years, all three placebo groups showed a 50 to 55% relapse rate uh, compared to about 10 to 20% relapse rate in patients that were on the thiazide diuretic. How do thiazide diuretics work? They augment distal tubular reabsorption of calcium. They stimulate proximal tubular reabsorption of calcium, and they lead to extracellular volume depletion. So it treats the underlying cause in renal leak hypercalciuria, the thiazide diuretic does, and it still lowers the urine calcium and absorptive hypercalciuria. So that's why thiazide diuretics have a role in both of these types of hypercalciuria. And again, the thiazide options, you should remember all three of these, there are risks and benefits to all of them. Uh, and they have similar side effect pro profiles, which I'll list next, but hydrochlorothiazide is twice a day. So quite often I'll use this and your nephrologist quite often will not be using it at the dosage that we've been taught to use it at. They quite often will use it once a day. But John Asplin, the head of Litholink, has taught us multiple times that twice a day is better dosing since this is spread out over two, it's spread, it has about a 12-hour efficacy. And quite often I'll use this if patients are also on potassium citrate that they're taking twice a day, just so they remember taking their drugs at the same number, three tablets in the morning, three tablets in the evening, or something of that sort. If you're going to use chlorothaladin and dapamide, the benefit to those medications are that they're once a day. They're easier for patients to remember, and not everyone needs a potassium citrate supplement. Quite often, the only thing that happens to them when they go on a thiazide diuretic is they become hypokalemic. And if that's the case, you can improve their, their potassium levels by putting once a day dosing of a potassium supplement. Indapamide has also theoretically and anecdotally been better to prevent glucose problems because glucose levels can rise in hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothaladone, which tends to happen a little bit less with indapamide and why certain urologists favor this. But thiazide diuretics have a lot of potential problems and need to be monitored closely in the beginning uh, and even in long term just to make sure they don't develop side effects. The main side effects that happen from thiazides are hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hypocitraturia, the hypo hyperglycemia that can occur, hyperuricemia because of the increased reabsorption of, uh, that potentially would happen with uric acid, and hypercalcemia. So you actually have a little twist that some thiazide diuretic, some patients on thiazide diuretics will actually start making uric acid kidney stones. So watch out for that. You need to monitor the electrolytes and uric acid levels when they're on these medications, these types of medications, and repeat 24-hour urine somewhere between the six-week and six-month range, depending on how closely you're following these patients, are important, and probably annually to try and make sure that they're actually, the thiazide diuretics are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, and the patient's diet has not gone with too much sodium where the thiazides would not work anymore. What are the treatments? So if you're trying to prevent hypokalemia that's occurring, it's potassium chloride typically. If you're trying to prevent hypokalemia, provide extra alkali load and prevent hypocitraturia, it's potassium citrate. So the latest addition of Campbell's will recommend either potassium citrate or potassium chloride for treatment of this side effect of thiazides. And if you develop hyperuricemia, consider allopurinol as well. 
when do you need to do a thiazide challenge? So there are some patients that have hypercalcemia and high serum parathyroid hormone level, but they have normal calcemia, which is again, not absolutely a sign of resorptive hypercalcemia because it's normal calcium level that's occurring. So what's the thiazide challenge? Thiazide challenge is typically using two weeks of a thiazide diuretic plus a potassium supplement and then repeating a parathyroid hormone, serum calcium level, and vitamin D. If you have primary hyperparathyroidism, your parathyroid hormone will remain elevated because there's no negative feedback occurring at the overactive gland. Now, if you have secondary hyperparathyroidism, such as something like low vitamin D, your parathyroid hormone will decrease and return back to the normal range because the thiazide retains the calcium and the negative feedback is intact because you don't have primary hyperparathyroidism. This is used rarely, but we do, I do use it probably once a year where I start someone on a thiazide when the picture is a little fuzzy and then you repeat their blood test a couple of weeks later and you do see this happening. And we probably pick up one hyperparathyroid case maybe every two to three years using this type of challenge. So something to keep on your, on your back burner to know and be aware of that to look out when you have to do a thiazide challenge. Um, but otherwise thiazides in general are used quite commonly in hypercalcemia and do not be afraid to prescribe it. You don't necessarily need to go to a nephrologist to prescribe a thiazide. All right, going back to our cause of calcium stones, after we completed hypercalcemia, the next major cause is hyperoxaluria. Oxalate is, uh, has, is endogenously produced by the liver. There's also dietary intake, which could be up to 50% of where your oxalate comes from. So very important to modify diets potentially to reduce oxalate loads. How does hyperoxaluria occur? So if you have lactose or some, uh, if you have calcium in your diet, let's say milk, and you have oxalate in your diet, that oxalate will bind with the calcium and go out in your intestinal tract. It will not allow the absorption of oxalate as, at a high level. But if you stop your calcium intake, you now will reduce your calcium oxalate stone formation. And this happens in enteric hyperoxaluria as well. Um, your oxalate gets hyperabsorbed because it's stuck in the intestine and not being bound to the calcium and it gets excreted out in your urine, which is a problem. Now, what happens in enteric hyperoxaluria or people with inflammatory bowel disease, they have fatty acids and bile salts that are going to bind the calcium that's inside of their intestinal tract, probably, or most likely, and will bind with it so that you no longer have, you have saponification of the calcium and the calcium goes through and the oxalate gets hyperabsorbed. So you have low urine calcium and you have high urine oxalates. And also what occurs with diarrhea is you get dehydrated, which can lead to low urine volume and you get bicarbonate loss, which can lead to hypocitraturia. So these patients with inflammatory bowel disease or patients that have had gastric bypass will quite often have hyperoxaluria and hypocitraturia, which is now a double-edged sword for them developing kidney stones. Enteric hyperoxaluria, look for this in anyone with a history of bowel disease or have had bowel surgery. Gastric bypass patients are a notorious group, and this has been well-studied and been found to have enteric hyperoxaluria, and then patients with inflammatory bowel disease. What is the treatment? So in general, it's going to be liberal fluid intake. You want them to reduce their fat and oxalate-rich food, rich, rich, oxalate -rich foods, and you want them to eat low-fat dairy products if possible, calcium products uh, that are in their diet to try and reduce stone formation. These patients also will sometimes benefit from calcium supplementation, either calcium carbonate or calcium citrate, and it's best to give this with meals. I typically will dose 500 milligrams with each meal of calcium citrate, which is my preference, and it's usually three times a day. 
And then they also sometimes will need additional citrate, such as potassium citrate. And because they have diarrhea or they have an ileostomy or something that's making them pass through their potential tablets very quickly, you want to preferentially prescribe liquid forms. In our practice, quite often it's potassium bicarbonate. It comes in two different forms. It's Kalorcon EF or FRK. If you don't remember those, let, uh, email me later or send me a meta message on Twitter or something of that sort in case you don't remember the dosings that I'm telling you. But those are typically 25 milliequivalent tablets. These are potassium bicarbonate. They typically are cheaper than potassium citrate. And I use it quite often in patients that just cannot afford potassium citrate because they're less expensive. If they don't like tablets, this is a good way to get it as well because it dissolves. It's an effervescent tablet. It dissolves in water and becomes like a flavored drink. Um, in rare cases, you have to use cholestyramine. I have never used that in my practice yet. And vitamin B6, which is pyridoxine, which can help reduce the formation of oxalate, uh, potentially in people's bodies. So I use a medication called Belif. It's a, it's a um, over-the-counter um, vitamin, uh, which has magnesium and pyridoxine. Quite often, you can use vitamin B6 alone, and increasing that will reduce your oxalate levels, especially in people that have idiopathic hyperoxaluria, where they just have done everything they can, and their oxalate levels are still a little bit high. Dietary hyperoxaluria. So this is a sensitivity, possibly, to an oral oxalate load. And then oxalobacter formigenes deficiency can also cause um, dietary hyperoxaluria, where they just do not have oxalate. They don't have the bacteria in their intestinal tract that it will degrade oxalate. This happens in certain regions of the world where they have a lack of oxalobacter formigenes, but it also happens in patients with cystic fibrosis because they have repeat antibiotic use because of pulmonary issues. They can potentially eradicate a lot of their normal bacteria from the intestinal tract, and now they're hyperabsorbing and causing calcium oxalate stones, possibly due to a sort of enteric hyperoxaluria. What's the treatment? Typically fluid intake, dietary restrictions with foods that are high in oxalate, and normal dietary calcium intake, which is again, that 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams per day. Reduction in dietary oxalate has not always been shown in a lot of studies to reduce your oxalate load or reduce stone formation, but it is one of the key things that you can do to try and reduce that oxalate number in people's diets. The problem is don't, I try not to overwhelm them with lists. There are lists that are out there. There's a list that's put out by Harvard. Unless they're really, really into it, that list is overwhelming for most patients. You wanna focus on a few key items items in their diet that's going to be very high that they can reduce. Things like spinach, things like beets. If you're in the South, maybe things like rhubarb. Um, nuts and nut butters are very high in oxalate. Almond milk, soy milk, very high in oxalate. Soy products and tofu, very high in oxalate. All of those things should be moderated in someone's diet. Even things like chocolate, if they eat a lot of it, are things that need to be cut back in people's diets. And if you can focus on a few of them, it's easier than giving them a list of a thousand things. And then there's primary hyperoxaluria, something that you should just put in your back of your mind. You do not want to miss this. If you see a 24-hour urine collection that has extremely high oxalate levels, greater than 100 milligrams per day, that is unexplained by a patient's diet, you need to figure out if they have primary hyperoxaluria. There are, there are readily available now, almost at, at these outside labs, that can test for primary hyperoxaluria with genetic testing. These are managed at a high volume centers that deal with this. The Mayo Clinic is probably one of the highest in the world, and you probably want to have your patient even referred there. But a lot of the major academic centers around here have a small population of primary hyperoxaluria. It's autosomal recessive. It's because of an inborn error of metabolism in a enzyme AGT, alanine glyoxalate trans transferase, which is in the liver. Um, there's an overproduction of endogenous oxalate that occurs, and the treatment is typically going to be a kidney and liver transplant. 
So you want to get these patients in the right hands. So anyone that has a super high oxalate that's unexplained, try and get them to someone that can rule out primary hyperoxaluria. Causes of calcium stones. Okay, back to the baseline. Now we're at hypocitraturia. There are many different forms, idiopathic, diarrhea, thiazide, diuretics, distal renal tubular acidosis, and you need to figure out which one of these patients have. This is one of the most common findings in patients that have calcium stone disease. Citrate complexes. Oops. Citrate complexes with urinary calcium. It lowers ionized calcium levels. Um, Lowers ionized calcium levels and inhibits, inhibits calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate growth. Um, so it's very critical for preventing stone disease. Hold on one second. My, okay. Um, so hypocitraria and calcium stone disease. There's a very simple way to think about this. When acidosis decreases and alkalosis increases renal tubular production of, uh, renal tubular production and excretion of citrate. So think about it this way. If you have acidosis, a metabolic acidosis, imagine distal renal tubular acidosis, someone that's on a carbonic anhydrous inhibitor, someone with a lot of exercise or a high animal protein diets, they have a lot of acid in their body. What is a buffer for acid in their body? Citrate. So as soon as the citrate starts buffering their acid load to try and make their body more neutral, you lose the citrate that's gonna be in your urine and you have hypocitraturia. And quite often in cases of distal RTA, exercise, high animal protein diets, their citrate levels are extremely low and this needs to be supplemented. This can also happen with thiazide diuretics where they get a hypocitraturia, but typically not as bad as patients that have distal RTA or that are on a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Dietary changes can also be used to increase urinary citrate. You can increase your intake of fruits and vegetables. This is one of the best recommendations that you can do for patients that have borderline or low, uh, not too low have not too significant hypocitraturia. You can increase their intake of high citrate beverages. This is not the be all end all. You cannot tell patients to just drink lemonade, lemonade and orange juice and this will cure their problem. When you have mild cases of hypocitraturia, they can increase their intake of lemons and oranges. And quite often if you do lemon juice inside of water, it's like a cup of lemon juice inside of a two liter bottle of water, maybe with a sweetener of some sort to try and um, increase their citrate levels in their urine. This can be done. It's not actually always very palatable and it can cause problems with their teeth and their stomach. It can cause um, uh, issues with uh, um, enamel loss on their teeth if they're drinking a lot of lemon juice. The other way is to increase, uh, is to limit their animal protein intake, which puts their body into a state of acidosis. This is a randomized, control, randomized double-blind study that was done in potassium citrate in idiopathic hypocitraturic patients by Charles Pack or Charlie Pack back in 1993. They basically showed if you have patients that have stone disease, calcium stone disease, and you put them on potassium citrate versus placebo, your potassium citrate patients do better. They have less stone events compared to the patients that are on placebo. Um, old study, still extremely relevant. It's one of the key things that allows us to do empiric potassium citrate therapy in patients that have Cal calcium-based stone disease. And here's a, late, a new study. This was only put out last year. Uh, and this is ways to try and figure out if patients need citrate, thiazides, et cetera, et cetera, just looking at stone analyses. 
So you have patients that have idiopathic calcium nephrolithiasis and look at pure calcium oxalate stone compositions. And quite often you can tell calcium, stone, calcium oxalate stone composition, composition even without getting a stone analysis. You can sometimes tell when you do enough stone disease when the, how the stone is breaking. The appearance of calcium oxalate dihydrate is usually a whitish, yellowish type of stone that dusts and, and breaks up into little particles very easily versus calcium oxalate monohydrate, which is a dark blackish, brownish looking color stone. Um, but when you try and figure out whether they have more calcium oxalate dihydrate versus monohydrate, if you have a low ratio of calcium oxalate dihydrate, more monohydrate, you're gonna have less chance of having metabolic abnormalities such as hypercalciuria. If you have calcium oxalate dihydrate as a predominant portion of the stone as, as, as opposed to like greater than 25% of your stone, you have an increasing prevalence of abnormalities in your 24-hour urine collection as far as calcium excretion. So what does this mean? Even without a 24-hour urine collection, if you're trying to do empiric therapy for pure calcium oxalate stones, if your stone is more calcium oxalate monohydrate, your 24-hour urine, if you actually did it, would probably show more hyperoxaluria and more hyposituratoria types of findings. This has been corroborated anecdotally by me. Mantu has also looked at this before, Dr. Gupta, who just did the last lecture, and he's actually seen similar findings to this study, which shows that diet and possibly potassium citrate in addition to diet will be the best ways to reduce the stone formation rate in calcium oxalate monohydrate stones. If you have a, a greater than 25% calcium oxalate dihydrate stone, those patients tend to have hyper hypercalciuria, and this is when thiazide diuretics play a critical role. And you'll see this in your 24-hour urine if you do a 24-hour urine. But this is really important even in patients that you do the stone analysis, but the patient just does not do the 24-hour urine, refuses to do it, is bad at doing it, something that you, where you want to empirically treat them. All right, some newer data. This is courtesy of Mike Borowski, one of my former residents who's on faculty at University of Minnesota giving a uh, poll-up lecture uh, next week. Uh, I think next week, yeah. So you can look at renal endoscopy when you're doing your surgery. Um, and if you're using a digital scope, which we don't use that often in my practice, like Manti does, we use a lot of fiber optic scopes as well, but digital ductal plugging is easily seen with either a fiber optic scope or a digital scope. And these are beautiful pictures of ductal plugging. And when you see this, you have a concern that these patients are making calcium phosphate-based stones. The urine pH tends to be higher in these patients. You have to be careful with citrate replacement in these patients. And these patients typically will benefit most with thiazide diuretics, plus or minus a, a potassium supplement, and not always potassium citrate. Because as their pH level goes up, and when the pH level starts getting above 6.5, you start supersaturating calcium phosphate. Remember these types of things. These are one thing about metabolic stone disease is one is easy, it's fairly easy to treat in your practice and hopefully you will be willing to treat this in your practice, but two is it's something very easy to examine on your exams because metabolic stone disease, these, these ideas are somewhat fixed uh, and they're recommendations and they're all guideline statements to some degree. Look at these renal papilla. These renal papilla are different. These renal papilla have Randall's plaques, different than the ductal plugging that you saw in the last imaging. These are calcium oxalate stones with a calcium phosphate core. The core occurs at the, at the tip of the papilla typically, and then calcium oxalate uh, crystallizes on top of it and forms a stone. These patients typically have less mineralization of their kidneys. They tend to have normal to more acidic urine pHs, and these are patients that typically will benefit more with potassium citrate rather than thiazide diuretics. All right. Good, good for you to always know distal renal tubular acidosis. You see the image over here is like an extreme case where you see lots of nephrocalcinosis in these kidneys. Um, this is typically distal RTA type 1. 70% of adults that have distal renal tubular acidosis typically have stones. 
It's very common in young women. So whenever you see a young woman stone former that has calcium phosphate stones or pictures of nephrocalcinosis on their CT scan or, or KEB x-ray, immediately distal renal tubular acidosis should be ruled out. Um, the treatment, so these patients, for, before you get to the treatment, these patients and your metabolic factors that you're looking for in urine, they typically have profound hypocitratoria, levels that are less than 100. Sometimes you'll see it in their teens. And they have a high urine pH level, typically 6 to 6.5. And in their bloodstream, in their serum studies, they have metabolic acidosis. So they typically have a low CO2 level in their serum studies with hyperchloremia and hypokalemia. So this is complete distal renal tubular acidosis. It's a genetic defect quite often that causes it. It's a genetic defect that causes it. Quite often, patients do not have this very severe form, and they have incomplete distal renal tubular acidosis, where they have mild findings such as this, but the treatment is fairly similar. It's just more aggressive in distal, pure, complete distal renal tubular acidosis. The treatment is typically increased in fluid intake. You want these patients to drink two and a half to three liters of fluid per day, and potassium citrate supplementation. You need to get the citrate levels to go up. And then finally, uric acid and calcium stones. So there are two different types of patients that have uric acid issues and calcium-based stones or uric acid-based stones. Low urine pH, metabolic syndrome. So patients with diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity. These patients tend to form uric acid kidney stones. Their urine uric acid tends to be more in the normal range, less than 600 milligrams per day, but their urine pH is their main issue. It's typically very acidic at less than 5.5. Then there are other patients that have hyperuricosuria and form calcium stones. These patients form calcium oxalate stones. Their urine uric acid is typically high and their urine pH tends to be 5.5 to 6.5. These patients sometimes have hypercalciuria as well that requires treatment. So the, again, the patients that are making uric acid stones, the treatment is potassium citrate or potassium bicarbonate or some sort of alkalinizing agent. In rare cases, you'll use sodium bicarbonate because they have renal insufficiency or some reason that they have a history of ulcer disease where they cannot tolerate gastric ulcer disease or duodenal ulcer disease that they cannot tolerate a potassium supplement. The goal is to increase their urine pH to six to 6.5, and this will allow dissolution of their stone. If their pH level starts to go above seven, just like I mentioned earlier, they will start to supersaturate calcium phosphate. This is dissolution or alkalinization therapy, and then you can continue a patient like this long-term for, for prevention of their stones. For the hyperuricosuric calcium-based stone former, these patients, if they have high uric acid levels, also typically will use allopurinol to decrease their uric acid levels. A lot of these patients will be purine gluttons, meaning that they just have a high uric acid level in their urine because they have high animal protein in their diet. The first thing to do with these patients is to reduce their animal protein intake. However, lots of these patients prefer animal protein because of specialized diets that they're on. It's led to weight loss, et cetera, et cetera. For those patients, allopurinol may be beneficial. Usually starts at around 100 to 300 milligrams per day. I typically will start patients low if their uric acid level is on the borderline low side, uh, high, like the little higher than normal. But if they're full blown and their high uric acid levels in their urine are very high or they have hyperuricemia, I start them on the 300 milligrams per day. And then potassium citrate to dissolve uric acid at times. Um, these patients, if you're on allopurinol, need to be monitored for both, need to be warned that they could have liver function enzyme issues. So the liver function enzyme should usually be measured within a few weeks after starting this medication, and as, long as, as well as their metabolic profile. Um, and then they can also develop a rash from allopurinol or exanthine oxidase inhibitors. So watch, warn patients about that as well.
They also need to limit their non-dairy animal protein intake. And you can look at their urine sulfate levels and you can look at their urine urea nitrogen levels to see how high their dietary intake of, of, uh, of uh, animal protein is in their diet. And that's easily available on 24-hour urine collections if you do them at any standardized lab. So very important for, so major conclusions, we went through this quickly. It's a lot of calcium stone disease and the medications. Um, and there's a lot of questions, so we'll try and answer them. But most important, one of the main cruxes of stone prevention is fluid intake. Motivate your patient to increase their fluid intake. There are patients that have low fluid intake. You'll see 24-hour urines where people drink and make less than one liter of urine per day. The fluid intake is probably a driving force for their stone formation. And use techniques to try and increase their fluid intake. Use the, the advantage of a, a nutritionist or a dietitian in your diet, but definitely try and do, use the apps use prescriptions, some sort of technique to increase their fluid intake, because if they do that, their stone formation rate will likely decrease. Metabolic evaluation, I consider very important. I like targeted therapy rather, and I use empiric therapy in some patients, but I like targeted therapy for the most part. Um, so this will allow you to choose your medications appropriately and monitor patients, one, for compliance, but two, to see if the medications are actually doing what they're supposed to do. Be prepared to treat for stone prevention, not just dietary recommendations, even though that's critical for preventing stones, it's not always enough. Be ready to prescribe thiazide diuretics, be ready to prescribe potassium citrate, be ready to prescribe allopurinol. If you're not ready, collaborate or, or, or meet with a nephrologist or find a nephrologist that, that would have some interest in stone disease, because most of them do not. And they don't definitely dose the medications and know our guidelines and our recommendations for prevention of stones. We actually have a higher, level potentially of overall knowledge of stone disease than nephrologists in general, because they have so many other things that they're interested in besides just stone disease. And stone disease is so prevalent in our practices. If you have any questions about this, obviously there's lots of resources. The medical management of kidney stones, the AUA guideline that came out uh, several years ago now is not outdated in the sense that these recommendations are pretty much in there. And these guidelines are, are updated regularly in case there's any new information out there. Um, Remember, stone analysis is important. Uh, try and get stone analysis because it helps you prevent kidney stones and it helps you differentiate calcium oxide from calcium, ox calcium phosphate stone formers. And even the differentiation of calcium oxide monohydrate from dihydrate is important in helping preventing kidney stones.